0: Hey everyone, sorry for the long absence. You might think we've been on vacation, but actually we've been working really hard on a slew of new projects. First and foremost, I'm pleased to announce that we are alpha testing a new paid community for serious investors in China tech called TechBuzz China Insider. So if you're into really deep dives, like what does the supply chain behind community group buying actually look like? What is the exact difference between how Pinduoduo and Meituan are executing on it? Why are they each adopting the different strategies that they are? Then email us at ruitechbuschina.com with your background and why you want to join. In addition, we are experimenting with new forms of audio. Many of you have told us that you love our audio essay type format, but you also want to hear some more casual conversations we have with other experts. So that's exactly what we're doing. We're calling them tech buzz China livecasts, and today's episode is one such experiment. And we've actually recorded several others already. There's one with product manager Dan Grover on WeChat 8.0, one on cybersecurity, and one on the creator economy in China. You can even join some of these conversations live on the Clubhouse app. Join in our real-time Q&A. Follow RUIMA on Clubhouse to get alerted to all the events we do. President's key economic team
1: goes to China. Uh, after a whole night banking, I say I still want to
0: do it. Hi, everyone. We're Tech Buzz China by Pan Daily, powered by the Seneca Podcast Network by SubChina. We're a bi-weekly podcast focused on giving you a peek into what's buzzing within the tech community in China. We uncover and contextualize unique insights, perspectives, and takeaways on headline tech news that don't always make it into English language coverage, so you can be smarter about the world of China tech. I'm your host today, Ring Ma. If you enjoyed our show, please review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We really appreciate it. And now, for a special edition of Tech Buzz China, a live cast with Carl Ulrich. Hi, everyone. Welcome. I want to introduce my friend and speaker, Professor Carl Ulrich, who is the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation and the CIBC Professor of Entrepreneurship and E-Commerce at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. He also holds an appointment as a professor of mechanical engineering, and he researches innovation, entrepreneurship, and product development. He's written many books. Today, we'll be talking about his latest one, which was just released last week, called "Win in China. But he's also written a couple other books, including Product Design Development, which is a textbook, as well as Innovation Tournaments that was published by the Harvard Business Press. In addition to his academic work, I just want to emphasize that Carl is not one of those people that is only uh, spent his time in academia. He's actually an entrepreneur himself. So he's led dozens of innovation efforts for medical devices, tools, you know, all sorts of products. And he holds more than 20 patents. He's actually the founder of TerraPass, which the New York Times identified as one of the most noteworthy ideas of 2005. And if you guys are into scooters, he's also a designer of the Zooter scooter. I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, which Businessweek recognized as one of the 50 coolest products of the 21st century. So really big deal. Carl holds bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in mechanical engineering from MIT. So like I said, today's topic is what it takes to win in China, a look at successes and failures. And we're really talking about Carl's most recent book, which is called Win in China. So I was very lucky to be able to proofread the book. And I knew it was going to be really good because I have a really high opinion of Carl. Because so many of the examples were on tech, even I was still really surprised about how many of those case studies I was actually unfamiliar with. Even though I was living in China and working in the industry when these companies were expanding and when these case studies were unfolding, but I just didn't know what actually was going on. And a lot of the assumptions I made about why these companies succeeded or failed actually weren't true. So I'm really happy to be introducing Carl to talk about these case studies a little bit more in detail. So the first question I wanted to ask you is, how did you come up with the idea of the book? And specifically, why did you pick these eight case studies? And could you tell us what they are actually for us in the room who don't have the table of contents in front of us?
1: Sure. Well, Ray, first, it's a huge pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of Tech Buzz China. I listen to every episode, so it's real. I'm really honored to be on the show. So first, I should say that the book is co-authored with Lila Song, who is a research fellow at the Wharton School. And the idea actually originated with a conversation I had with Lula. Lula came in my office at Wharton, San Francisco, and she said, Carl, she was an alum." of Penn, she came by and said, hey, I graduated from Penn. I want to write a book. And my plan is to write a book about US tech company failures in China. And I said, Lola, that sounds like a real downer. And we also don't really just support people to write books here at Wharton. But then she left and I got to thinking about it. And I said, well, okay, but what if the scope were broadened to be beyond tech and beyond US and looked at successes and failures. That would be a book that would have a broader audience and would be more interesting and would be a little more upbeat. So I went back to Lola and I said, hey, why don't we work on this together? And why don't we broaden it? And why don't we make it about successes and failures? So to answer your second question, Ray, the book has is basically eight deep case studies. In most cases, they're the first time anyone's written an in-depth case study of the company's experiences in China. And then we have as bookends a framework at the beginning and then some prescriptions at the end. And the eight companies are Amazon, Norwegian Cruise Line, Hyundai, and LinkedIn. Those are the first four. And I should say the first two are, are unquestionably failures, Amazon and NCL. And then Hyundai sort of is a two-part story, which we can get into if you want. And then uh, LinkedIn is, the the jury's still out. They have not yet succeeded. And then the four successes are Sequoia Capital, Inmobi, which is an Indian ad tech company, Intel, and Xenia, the Italian fashion brand.
0: So I want to start off with, I think, the elephant in the room, which is uh, Amazon. When I first Moved to China, Amazon was alive and well for a while. It really looked like they were going to really take over the market because they started going to China in 2004, which is still pretty early. And they bought one of the leading local domestic players called Joyo. They, you know, Jeff Bezos is obviously a famously long term thinker and just looked like they were really investing hard in the country, hiring a lot of talent, including many of my friends. But ultimately, they didn't really work out. It Actually, in mid-2019, they announced that they were going to shut down their Chinese marketplace business and shift their focus to offering mainland consumers overseas products rather than goods from local sellers, which, if we all know Amazon's business model, that's, you know, the marketplace is a huge part of their business. So that was a really big blow, and everyone saw that as a retreat of the company from China. What do you have to say about Amazon? Why did they not work out?
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating story. As with all of these stories, there's like a bunch of factors, but let me just take on a few of them. The first is that Amazon very much has a philosophy of one best way. There's one best way to do things, and we figured it out. And they're a little bit, I would say, a little bit arrogant that way, but often quite right. And in fact, one of the key principles of Amazon is leaders are frequently right or right most of the time or something like that. And so they bring a certain arrogance that we've figured this out and we know how to do things. And they brought that model to China and they were very reluctant to localize at all, including things like aggressive pricing. And so that's the first factor. And that would be fine. If they were entering the Italian market, where there was no local rival that could compete, really, could recreate the tech that Amazon had. But when you go into China, you're up against uh, local competitors who, if they win just their local market, that is, if they become the leaders in China, they're billionaires. They're wildly successful. And that becomes their single-minded focus. And so that's what you're up against And so they were up against competitors, JD and Alibaba and others who were willing to lose hundreds of millions of dollars to win the Chinese prize. And Amazon didn't bring enough in terms of its distinctive capabilities to overcome the fact that it was intrinsically less nimble and less agile than those local competitors. So that was the main factor. But there's another really interesting aspect to the Amazon story, which is that Amazon had opportunity costs. So if you actually look at the last five years, Amazon's return on capital has just crushed that of JD or Ali. Their stock is up a factor of 600% in the last five years. They had amazing opportunities globally. And so with a scarcity of managerial talent And some restrictions on capital, any company has to make a decision of, am I willing to lose hundreds of millions of dollars a year for some possible eventual prize here in China? Or should I be trying to go out and win India or win Europe or win Latin America? And Amazon decided that their capital was better put elsewhere.
0: I remember there was also one case study that I wasn't aware of that you, or not case study, one example that you cited as part of the Amazon case about providing customer chat. Right. I thought that was really interesting to contrast what they did there with Alibaba.
1: Yeah, well, I guess that's a nice example of lack of localization. Amazon takes the strategy that we're going to really build a great user experience. We're going to really understand user behavior, run lots of A-B testing, and then we're never going to let you interact with a human. And the Chinese consumer expects a little more coddling and the cost of customer service in China is much lower than it is in the rest of the world. So its competitors were willing to build features that perhaps were a little more labor intensive, but that better met the needs of the Chinese consumer. And Amazon was just not willing to do that.
0: Yeah. And you see that even today. I think very few people realize how much of e-commerce is still powered with people-to-people interaction. They're like Pinduoduo, you know, like basically all the brands, even the luxury brands have WeChat groups where you join and there's like a person promoting stuff and selling stuff to you. And you get this idea that, you know, you're in a group, a community of buyers and everyone is interested in this brand or interested in what this person has to sell. It's very people intensive and highly manual in a sense, even today in 2021. Well, let's go on to another case study, right? So I think Amazon is a little bit of a downer. Like you said, they made maybe a very rational choice to invest in other markets and not put so much time into China when there's a lot of local players willing to lose a lot more money than they were able to. Let's contrast them with a successful case study in Mobi. So I actually had quite a few friends who were working at Mobi and I had like a vague idea of what they were doing, which was digital advertising. I didn't actually know they were an Indian company and I was definitely not aware of how successful they were. I mean, I kind of got the idea because they were sponsors at a lot of tech events in Beijing. Could you tell me or tell the audience more about in Moby, and they're, I guess, like pretty incredible success.
1: Well, the first thing is that In Moby is a fascinating story, and I would say seventy-five percent of it is a story of the CEO Jesse Young, the China CEO Jesse Young. So, yes, Indian company, but the founder was an HBS grad. And Jesse Young was a Sloan MBA working at McKinsey. And Tawari, who's the Indian CEO, started this company in Mobi that had an advertising technology. And he had global ambitions and decided he was going to go after the Chinese market. So the in story is one of where if you actually have a unique product, like if you have a better mousetrap, And you show up in a market with a better mouse trap, you can probably sell it, at least initially, until the local competition figures it out. And that was the InMobi story. They showed up with a mobile advertising platform that filled an important gap in the marketplace when there weren't other competitors. And that's what gave them their initial toehold. But then it was Jesse Young who was just a force of nature as a CEO and the local CEO, And so she, at that point, basically treated Inmobi as a startup. And so it was sort of Jesse's startup in China. And at a certain point, China actually started eclipsing the other markets. And so I actually don't know what's happened in the last couple of months, but when we interviewed Jesse for the book, she said, you know, at some point I went back to the mothership and I said, we got to fork the code here. And we're going to have to create our own Chinese version of this product because we're not responsive enough. And so she did that. She had her own developers. She developed locally. And then at a certain point, point, they and I think this is their current plan, they're going to spin out the company into two companies because the Chinese market was sufficiently different and sufficiently vast that it could support a separate company. And that that, in fact, would maximize the shareholder value of the original founding team. And so it's a story in this case of getting super lucky with the CEO, but then giving this company who has an initial toehold, giving them enough autonomy to go build what was essentially a successful startup within
0: China. Yeah, I remember when I was reading this story, when you say that Jesse is a force of nature, but it's really important to point out she didn't actually have any experience in this sector, right? She was like a consultant or something.
1: Yeah. She had no experience as an entrepreneur and she had no experience in the sector. And that's why I say she was a force of nature. I mean, I literally think it was just her. And you just comes across when you talk to her. She's incredibly passionate, incredibly hardworking, but also whip smart and has this really amazing global perspective on
0: e-commerce and on entrepreneurship. And do you think that for Jesse, you know, I understand she's like really capable, but if she wasn't given the sort of leeway to go and pursue this, I mean, I can't imagine someone like... I don't know if anyone from Uber China or something is in the audience going to headquarters and saying, hey, we need to completely have a separate app and fork the code. And it's going to be, we need a completely separate development team. And by the way, we're just going to be a separate company, you know, or take Uber or any other large internet company. I don't know how that would have been treated by the management.
1: Well, Ray, you're getting at what's the central tension because- If you're not going to take advantage of the mothership, what are you doing? You're basically just starting a startup. And so if you're not bringing something from the mothership, you might as well be a startup because there's a lot of overhead and sluggishness that comes with coordinating with a global parent. And so you better bring something very powerful to the table. If all you're going to do is fork and become a startup, you're better off not having any ties to the headquarters because that stuff slows you down. And so. In some ways, in Moby played it just right. what they brought initially was the original product, which was good enough to get started. But then when the sluggishness started to get in the way, they forked, and they went independent. So you compare that to another example we have, which is LinkedIn. LinkedIn went to China, and their strategy was to create a completely new app, Chetu. And then they had the worst of all worlds, right? Because they didn't have a powerful product from the parent, but they still had the sluggishness of coordinating with the parent. In that case, they played it exactly wrong and it would have been better just to have been a completely independent
0: startup. Well, that reminds me of another case study, which was actually so I was a little bit more familiar with the LinkedIn story because I was actually there, had a dinner with Derek, I think the day they announced Shitu and announced that he was joining and they were going to make this product. So I remember it was very full of hope, although I think quite a few of us were skeptical about how it would be received by the population. But this reminds me of another case study that you had in the book, which I thought was super interesting, which is on Norwegian cruise lines. I think you probably get asked this one a lot because it was actually just really funny how they went to China, did a ton of customer research. And I understand was really initially actually very successful getting customers because they picked the right star, right? Wang Li Hong to be their spokesperson.
1: Yeah, so... Norwegian Cruise Line is a fascinating company. First of all, it's not Norwegian, by the way. Their headquarters is in Florida, and but they kind of invoke this cool brand by be, calling Norwegian Cruise Line. So they they started off. You know, the cruise industry was pretty promising because it was a growing market for the. Chinese, the affluent Chinese, also an emerging middle class. And the government was actually trying to encourage ports and cruise operators to be operating in China. So it looked pretty good. And so NCL did a ton of customer research and they figured out that they wanted to build a cruise ship that would be really tailored to the Chinese consumer. So you might imagine what it looked like. It had a bunch of gambling, a bunch of online shopping. It was red and gold, had dragons, all that stuff, you might imagine. And then you know, sorry, of three things happened. The first thing that happened was a bunch of others, Carnival and others, also entered the market at the same time. So there was a glut of capacity. And because they weren't a well known brand, they ended up with a, more of a middle class customer base than an elite affluent customer base. And the middle-class Chinese have very different spending habits from affluent Westerners. So they're very budget conscious. They don't drink a lot outside of meals. So the bar business wasn't that successful. The prices weren't that great. So they were very price conscious in the shopping. So the offerings were sort of a bust. But the most interesting thing is the the customers observed that, hey, wait a second. We thought we were going to get or Norwegian cruise experience or maybe an American cruise experience. And instead, we got a kind of silly knockoff of a Chinese experience. And that's not what we're looking for in our vacation. And so it actually localizing actually backfired on them. Now, NCL also had a similar story to Amazon, which is they had huge opportunity costs. And so at the time, the Alaska cruise business was booming and they had this brand new ship, the Joy in in China while there was unmet demand in Alaska. And they said, okay, screw it. And they spent $50 million to rip out all the gold and red and to retool it as an American cruise ship and redeploy it in, in Alaska.
0: Yeah, I just remember very vividly, like the example you had in the book of the Chinese customers weren't pleased with like all the karaoke rooms in baijiu when they were expecting like high tea with, you know, wide gloved waiters speaking English. So and that's what they were thinking of when they were thinking of a cruise line. So I have one last question for Carl, and that is... Okay, given the tensions today between especially the U.S. and China, but I think there are multiple geopolitical conflicts going on, what do you think is the opportunity for foreign companies, so non-Chinese companies, to go into China today? I imagine you're getting lots of inbound inquiries from companies after your book is published. So what is your advice to people?
1: Yeah, well, we actually... So let me make a short pitch for the book. First of all, it's a Wharton School Press book and Wharton School is not really seeking to make money on its publishing operations. It's really about disseminating information. So this book is super cheap. It's like 10 bucks on the Wharton School Press site, $11 on Amazon. And if you're really too poor to buy it, send me a note. I'll, I'll get you some bootleg PDF or something. But we do have a chapter, two chapters at the end, that are really prescriptions for those who are considering entering China. And I would say just a few comments on the current situation. I actually think that actually operating in China might actually be easier than doing an import-export arrangement. I mean, you could sell your products and services in China without actually operating in China through a partner or distributor or through import-export. But the tariffs right now and the travel restrictions uh, all make that pretty dicey. And so in some ways, it would be easier to actually operate in China than to operate it as import-export. So that's the first point. The second thing is people, I think, focus on the industries that are highly restricted in China. You know, We look at Google and Facebook and maybe even higher education, but the reality is the vast majority of industries are wide open in China. If you want to do retailing or consumer or even a lot of B2B products, there are very few restrictions. So I think really looking at the regulatory framework and, and understanding what is restricted and what isn't is pretty important. But then the most important question you got to ask is, in what categories and for my products and services, what ammunition do I really bring against local competition? And I think there are some categories where there's some real opportunities. I think first is, if your business, if its westernness is in fact one of its distinctive characteristics, that can be an advantage. So if you think about the classic example would be Starbucks, it's in fact Starbucks westernness that is its distinctive advantage. And it makes it much harder for Costa or a local competitor to replicate that in China. So westernness and western brands are certainly distinctive assets. The second kind of capability is, I think, anything that's deep tech. I think China, it's still the case in China that the best and the brightest are still going after low-hanging fruit, entrepreneurial opportunities in China. So a lot of e-commerce, a lot of consumer apps, sort of straightforward consumer services, it's just so much opportunity that a lot of entrepreneurs are jumping right into those opportunities. If you do something that's much deeper tech, so I don't know, computer-aided design for circuits or you know sensors for electric cars, something that's truly deep tech, you're much less likely to encounter severe competition in China, and you're more likely to bring distinctive assets to the party, those situations might work well. I think a big open question, maybe something our listeners can weigh in on, and I know, Ray, you have some thoughts. Our enterprise software, I think, remains a pretty interesting question. Is there an opportunity for a Salesforce or LinkedIn in, in China in the enterprise software space. We haven't yet really seen that, although I would predict that eventually those companies are going to have to exist. So I would say there's still lots of opportunity. Be realistic about what the true regulatory constraints are, and then just do a really honest assessment of what you bring to the party. What is it that you can uniquely do that will allow you to operate with the necessary coordination costs with coordinating with your headquarters against a very scrappy, well-financed local competitor.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with a lot of those points that you raised. I think some of the deep tech places, because of U.S. sanctions, particularly on semiconductor, are getting filled up quite quickly because you know China has now elevated some of these sectors to a national level of importance. And so there will be a lot more funding being poured in. But I think that's right in general that, you know, there's still opportunity. As for enterprise software, I don't know, that's the million or that's the trillion dollar question. Everyone I know, myself included, I guess for me, I vacillate between like, oh yeah, it's coming really, really soon. And oh, no, it's actually still another 5, 10 years away because of the way businesses are run so differently there, the nature of the labor market, the level of education throughout the population, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think overall, it's it's more hopeful than a couple years back. Thanks for listening to the special live cast episode today let us know what you think my twitter is spelled r-u-i-m-a and you can follow us at tech buzz china the pan daily and sub china news tech buzz china by pan daily is powered by the Seneca podcast network on SubChina. pandaily.com is an english language site that tells you everything about china's innovation our producers are bryce ye and kaiser guo thank you for listening